from Green Biz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at Green Biz Headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, the man behind sustainable beef, the changing world of corporate clean energy buying, and is it time to say goodbye to the Green Power Partnership? We're telling truth to power this week on 350. Without federal oversight, who will be the standard bearer for the environment? Who will inspire, influence, and innovate to secure a sustainable future? Who will create a legacy of leadership? You will. Lead from the front. The Environmental Defense Fund has your back. It's July 7th, 2017. Welcome to this week's episode of Green Biz 350. I'm Joel McCower. With me is Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello there. You're just back from your long 4th of July weekend. Where were you? I did a truly off-the-grid weekend in the Adirondacks. You know, as I was driving up there, you, you kind of get deeper and deeper into the, the lakes. Uh, I was in the, the lakes region at a place called Indian Lake, a very lovely little 14 mile long lake. Um, and, you know, people are, are using propane there, you know, that you don't have the gas pipelines, you don't have in here in the Northeast, uh, natural gas and the pipelines have become so big, um, as well as the rooftops in New York and, and New Jersey rooftop solar. But um, it's in the Adirondacks, you're still in propane and you do not have cell service. So it was quite a, a back to nature weekend for me on the lake. Uh, reminding me why I do this, uh, why why I'm with Green Biz, and making me feel a little bit closer to what I write about. Well, it sounds like you're off the grid, but not completely off duty. We're thinking about the energy systems up there in the Adirondacks. So, uh, good on you for managing to do both of those. Never off duty. And what about you, Joel? Oh, I was uh, woefully on the grid <laughs> <laughs> here in Oakland, uh, the wife and dogs, and you know, just doing our thing and uh, enjoying uh, just. Uh, you know, we, we don't like to travel when everybody else is. And so we were just enjoying being here and the weather was delightful, low seventies, sunny and you know, all that stuff. So it was, it was pretty nice. And, um, you know, someone had to keep the lights on here at Green Viz. So that was, uh, that fell to me this year. So well, thank you so much for doing that. The lights are on, we're, we're still in business and uh, let's just get right into the week in review. Well, let's start this week with the Green Power Partnership. Now, this is the the EPA program that uh, has helped companies migrate to uh, renewable energy, um, whether they're doing it on site or buying it in some other way. And it's a one of the many voluntary programs that's been going on out there. That and and of course, like most of those voluntary programs, the current administration has been planning to eliminate that. And this uh, interesting piece uh, from a consultant and freelance writer named Sarah Murphy, uh, who has Sarah Smiles Consulting, who says that, well, maybe it's time just to cut the Green Power Partnership loose. Yeah, it's the, when I start, first started writing for Green Biz, Joel, I don't know if you remember this, that was one of the things that we write, wrote about often, right? Because it was one of the programs uh, that helped some of the larger corporates really focus in on this issue and think about how what they were buying, where they were buying. And it, it inspired a lot of the renewable energy credit market, right? So you'd see companies like Intel showing up at the top of this list a lot. 
what I think the, the reason that, that we're raising this question, number one, is because this, this is one of the programs that's on, uh, on the cutting board, if you will, uh, with, with the EPA cuts. And it might have run its course. I mean, if you think about it, I think it originally was that out there to help convince the corporates that they really should do this. And I think the mentality is there. And um, a lot of the sort of activity has shifted to helping how you do this, right? So um, how you find and, and negotiate power purchase agreements and how you orchestrate other purchases, perhaps on site and, and really invest in this as more as a strategy. So you haven't seen the same kind of support for it yet um, that you've seen for the Energy Star program, right? You mean you mean the out the hue and cry from the corporate? Yeah, from the corporate community. world. Yeah, it's yeah. been. I mean, there's been some. You know, people are talking about it, um, but there hasn't been the same sort of. Uh, I would say coordinated resistance, yeah. if you will. Well, I think as you said that you know this has taken on a life of its own, and and we ran a piece this week. Uh, called Why Advanced Energy is Winning Despite Federal Odds and Oddities. Um, and, you know, talking about uh, you know, how the CEO of the energy giant AEP declared that despite uh, the decision to pull out of the Paris Climate Agreement, um, his company would continue its path of moving to clean energy economy. And, you know, and, and, and so many companies have stepped up to say we're, A, not changing anything, and B, in some cases we're going to, accelerate what we're doing. Sarah Murphy article mentions REBA, the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance, which is this uh, organization of three or 400 companies, uh, mostly large, but not all of them, uh, that have that are on this path and have committed to uh, a significant portion, if not 100% of their energy from renewables. And it helps them do that. We're, uh, just to put in a plug, hosting the REBA meeting at our Verge conference in Santa Clara, California, in September, um, and a lot of those companies have been green power partners, and so uh, you know uh, this may be one of those ones that we, is, as Sarah is suggesting, we just sort of let go and uh, and see what you know. We may not need it so much anymore. It's uh, yeah. be, become the buggy whip of uh, <laughs> federal programs. Right? How many? How many fights? Where do you put your? Where do you put your fight, if you will? Yeah. Well, speaking of fights, um, we've had a couple of stories this week on food, and one of them uh, is, is a great Q and A with uh, the head of sustainability for JBS, which is one of the big companies that no one's ever heard of. They're one of the largest beef producing and processing companies, and one of the big suppliers of McDonald's. And Cameron Brewett, who's their head of sustainability and works with. Uh, uh, McDonald's a lot uh, did a Q&A with Bob Langert, who used to be the head of sustainability at McDonald's, now editor-at-large at GreenBiz, talking about uh, not just uh, sustainable beef, um, but interestingly, how a, an African-American fares in the world of sustainability, a graduate of Tuskegee University. And it's just a really interesting, really good read. I've had a number of people said, you know, it's a kind of a long piece. I'd looked at it, I didn't want to read it. But once I got into it, it really grabbed me. Yeah, it was absolutely, I had the same as I was editing it. I thought, wow, that was a really good Q&A. And uh, I, what I, I took two things away from it primarily. Number one, um, you know, if you go back to the beef, the sustainable beef issue for a moment. And, you know, I think, you know, as a journalist, we love black and white, right? You know, and I, I don't mean that in, in the sense of this particular column, but but more like gray. Gray is very hard to work, you know, so many of these issues that we cover are so um, 
regionally dependent and locally dependent and in this particular state or on this particular farm, sustainability is such a um, complex science, a complex set of behaviors. And that came through in this piece, right, where you talk about you know, if each region is going to have a different approach. Brazil's needs will be different from the United States and so forth. And In terms of a standard for sustainable beef? In terms beef. of a standard, absolutely. And how is it organic? Is it grass-fed? Is this the best approach for this market? I mean, I think we tend to want to oversimplify things um, sometimes. And that remi- this reminded me um, that it is so complex. And um, and I also really appreciated his point about, you know, people trying to prove they're uh, innocent, if you will. <laughs> no, we, we're doing the right thing. And, and yeah, the, the right thing is different in different places. And, and, and it can be, you can feel like you're being punished for something that really makes sense where you are. And I, I think sometimes that we forget that. So that was one thing I took away. But I also really did appreciate his points about the African-American experience and where that society typically plays in the food chain. And actually, Bruett is biracial, um, he points out, but uh, urban versus rural, it, it points to that, that dichotomy of, of needs and what people are thinking about. So that came through as well. So I mentioned what, that there were two stories. There's actually three food stories we ran this week, and I want to talk about one more before we get to the, the, the really kind of interesting one, which is... Uh, I mean, they're all interesting. But they're this, all, this the aunt controversial. Yeah, we'll yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but there, we we did run a piece on on sort of the new uh, investment um, uh, intra, investor interest in sustainable food supply chains, and this is uh, uh, based on, on a, a report that Ceres, a nonprofit group, uh, put out called "Engage the Chain: An Investor Guide on Agricultural Supply Chain Risk," uh, and looking at um, and I encourage you to check out not just the story, but also to to download that report um, and how the this is really being driven uh, a lot by by investors who are looking for companies to demonstrate that they're sourcing their ingredients in a way that's sustainable. Long term investors want companies to manage and disclose their environmental, social, governance impacts um, and uh, evidence of effective corporal, corporate governance. How they're showing interest in how the food and beverage sector is responding to a wide range of supply chain challenges, many of which, but not all of which, are related to climate change. So uh, that's a, it's just a really interesting area, and we've reported, and I know you've done some of this as well, and as as our senior writer Barbara Grady about General Mills and Unilever and other companies that are really digging in, as it were, to their agricultural supply chains. Yeah, and it does, and it points back to the science-based targets conversation, right? Both those companies are, are two of the leaders in that, um, in that regard. And they absolutely, there is, they have to engage their supply chain. It's not going to happen if they don't do that. And um, I, I think that that link is, is important to mention as well, because uh, people are paying attention and, and money, the money people are paying attention. And uh, this is, this was a, a, yeah, a good story that reminds you of the fact that this is a, a strategy and it's a business and, and this matters operationally, not just for some kind of sustainable branding. Yeah. And if you, if you, if you ever want to understand uh, the complexities of, of, of some of these supply chains, um, you know, look at the piece that I wrote uh, three years ago. I did a three-part series about McDonald's and sustainable beef. And in one part of that series, um, Looked at the beef supply chain, the hamburger, how how something gets from a ranch 
to not just the Big Mac, but uh, but any hamburger that you're going to get through a restaurant. Um, it is not simple at all that there's you know 7,000 feedlot, 800,000 cattle ranches in the United States alone, about half of whose beef ends up in a, a McDonald's burger. 400,000 ranches end up in a McDonald's burger, and they go to 7,000 feedlots, and, and on and on, and then it, it ends up with two or three companies that make the quick frozen patties that end up in the restaurant. It's incredibly complicated, and, and to try and change that, to transform that to some version of sustainability is, is a really tough, tough challenge. But speaking of tough, tough challenges, let's get to our, our last story. Now, we don't normally uh, typically cover uh, genetically modified organisms, GMOs. But uh, our uh, Director of Strategic Programs, Shauna Rappaport, did a Q&A with uh, the producer and, I think, director of a new uh, documentary called Food Evolution, that was released uh, last month in June. And it takes on the, a science-based view of GMOs. And it uh, seems to be, it's got Neil deGrasse Tyson, the beloved scientist, and Bill Nye, the science guy. And Shauna writes makes a compelling case for looking more closely at the science, which shows that genetically engineered food isn't damaging, as damaging as commonly believed, and may unlock greater benefit for people on the planet. Well, the... You know, let's just say the beef hit the fan here. I mean, the <laughs> uh, we, we the other thing we don't, you know, I have to say that as much as we love to get comments on stories, the Green Biz audience is isn't typically you know like let's say Huffington Post or, or a lot of other publications where you get a lot of comments. We write a lot of stories that don't get any comments. This got you know dozens and dozens and dozens of comments and. It turned into well a food fight. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're going to cross by the time we're we're live with this episode, we will absolutely be more than five hundred um, comments. And I think it, it it comes down to this. It comes down to whether or not um, these are dangerous for humans. And the reason we we decided to run this piece was because of roughly the same percentage of scientists who say climate change is a problem also say that GMOs are safe for people in the environment, because there's two threads there, right? Is it safe for people? Is it safe for the world, the, the, the soil, the planet, and so forth? And um, the, the debate is definitely heated on this one. And I, I encourage you to, I mean, I think it goes back to the oversimplification, right? It's hard to know. And, and it's hard for the average consumer to um, understand this issue. And I think, you know, it, my press coverage of this issue, it's been more of a matter of, um, labeling, right? That's that's been the more recent months. The the dominant thread here, people should at least know what's in there. You know, they should know that it's a GMO, right? Um, and that's become one of the the fights. But wow, yeah, I, I seriously encourage everyone to to take a look at this, to maybe go see this documentary, um, and think about it. I mean. I, at least think about it. I think that that's your, your point before about the the percentage of scientists. I think is you know the implicit part of that, if it is if not explicit, is that uh, we choose to believe the scientists who say that climate change is real and human caused and all that, and we the even you know ninety some percent, and we choose not to believe the ninety some percent of scientists who believe that. Who, who say that uh, GMOs are safe. And so that's an interesting um, 
an interesting dynamic and sort of getting into that is sort of wading into that is sort of a, a, a bit of a minefield when you look at these comments. I mean, the comments are just, you know, as you said, it's hundreds of these things. I didn't realize it was 500. That's astonishing. Uh, and and everybody's got an opinion and everybody's got facts for their opinion. And I just think it shows the complexity uh, of, of how do we think about this and how do we talk about this and how do we really really have a conversation about this so yeah let's let's uh check this out and um, join in without federal oversight who will be the standard bearer for the environment who will inspire influence and innovate to secure a sustainable future who will create a legacy of leadership you will lead from the front the environmental defense fund has your back Just five years ago, the idea of a big company buying clean energy directly from a developer or utility was pretty nascent. Microsoft was among the pioneers that have helped make negotiating power purchase agreements much more possible, although this process is still far from easy. I recently had a chance to speak with Brian Janis, the software giant's director of energy, about how the process and the overall energy market is evolving. One of the more intriguing topics to consider is how prices are changing and how that might affect the length of contracts that a corporate buyer might be willing to sign. It's one reason we've seen the typical terms of a PPA shrink from 20 years to 15 years and, in some cases, even 10 or shorter. Here's what Janice had to say about how the pricing dynamics associated with mainstream renewables adoption are changing the rules of PPA negotiations. It's really interesting because on the one hand, you look at the decline in price and you think, well, this is great for everyone. But it's not necessarily great for everyone because electricity markets are a very unique animal uh, in that as we continue to put more supply into a market where we're actually seeing uh, flat to decreasing demand, we're having a material effect on the actual price of power as well at the same time. So there's an externality there that is material for thinking about how we even design electricity markets in the future because we can't keep putting on more zero variable cost energy into a market and not expect to have some impact on the nature of that market. One thing it means for us is that electricity has become very cheap, uh, which is certainly not a bad thing for a company that is uh, buying more electricity every year as as our cloud growth accelerates. But it does create a lot of interesting new opportunities. It's really changed the dynamic in a lot of ways. And so I think the business models are starting to evolve. Um, but it, it creates a lot of risk too, because low electricity prices are not great for everyone. It's certainly not great for, say, a power plant that was hoping to have some return you know, based on a massive investment they made a couple years ago, and that return's just not there anymore. These changes definitely mean that corporate energy buyers need to stay closely abreast of regional market dynamics, such as how much solar or wind is available in a given state or or several states, and also how much the local wholesale market could actually handle in those places. I asked Janice about how this is changing the motivation for corporate purchases, and here are more of his observations. I think more companies are starting to realize that... um, Getting a you know, 20-year deal at two and a half cents is not necessarily going to save you money in the short run when power is clearing at sub two cents. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that these things are not a free lunch, uh, and so that's a realization I think that's starting to kick in. Um, is that 
three or four years ago, everyone thought, oh, these are only going to always save me money. And they're realizing as these things start to settle in the market, we're actually having to write checks and then right. go back and explain why yeah. <laughs> these aren't saving us money from day one. So there's got to be another motivation there. It can't just be about we're going to save money, right. but that there's some rationale and reasoning behind why we do these things right. that aren't just about we're going to be saving money from day one. We're committed to doing this because it's the right thing to do. You know, we're building uh, the infrastructure that I think it's a lot like the where the electricity industry was a hundred years ago, where the the innovators that time, the Thomas Edison's and Sam Ensel, they built the infrastructure that created the foundation for all the innovation that we saw in the 20th century. And there's nothing that happened of significance in the 20th century that wasn't in some way dependent upon electricity, sort of the engine of innovation. Um, and we look at data centers today as the same way. Right? We're building, it's really gonna be data that's gonna be the electricity of the next century. And so we feel like that there's a legacy that we're gonna leave with what we build. Um, and that's important to us as a company. It's not just about, are we gonna save money on this PPA or not, but are we gonna do this the right way? And are we gonna leave a positive story as we look back, our children look back you know, 50 and 100 years from now, did we do the right thing in the way that we built out this infrastructure? For years, sustainable business has been seeping its way into colleges and universities around the world. And it's not just classes. Universities are developing think tanks, incubators, research, and other programs looking at global and local environmental and social challenges from pollution to poverty to product development. And some of them are inviting big companies in to help. Associate Editor Anya Hollemeiser just spoke with the founder of one such program at New York University. Anya, what's going on? Hey Joel, I was in New York City right before Bridge Hawaii and when I was there I stopped by the NYU Stern School of Business for a chat with Tanzi Whelan who is the Clinical Professor of Business and Society at NYU Stern School of Business and the Director of its Center for Sustainable Business. So Whelan has a really, really interesting background. She was the president of Rainforest Alliance. And while she was at Rainforest Alliance, uh, she increased the organization's budget from $4.5 million to $50 million, increased their global visibility, recruited 4,000 companies um, in 60 countries around the world to aid in their sustainability and anti-deforestation efforts. So she's bringing all of this visibility of experience of creating programs that work and scaling them towards NYU. She also leads research around climate change, water scarcity, um, biodiversity loss, and other sustainable and unsustainable development um, challenges that the world is facing at large. And as the founder of the Sustainability Center, and as the person who launched NYU's business programs, she's also brought in um, real-world learning experiences to the students. She's invited Pfizer, um, McDonald's, sustainability, professionals to come in and talk about how how resource deficits, natural resource scarcity, and supply chain will in fact impact businesses and business operations. So we started out talking about how her experience at Rainforest Alliance now filters into her current role in academia. So I ran Rainforest Alliance for 15 years. Great job. Um, we work to help businesses really change land use practices, business behavior, and consumer behavior, and we work um, on conservation, biodiversity, and sustainable livelihoods in about 60 countries around the world, and with about 5,000 companies. 
to really change their practices. Um, and I, I had a great time sort of learning about forestry and agriculture and tourism and how you leverage corporate engagement and consumer engagement. And then most importantly, what I loved was really seeing the impact on the ground with producers and, um, w w and for the environment, for the, the work we did. And, and using working with business, you can really get to scale in an exciting way. And in your tenure there, you made connections with thousands of businesses, NGOs. Um, what have you learned from, you know, facing the challenges of helping um, businesses and organizations mainstream sustainability? Yeah. I think uh, businesses, depending on the sector, of course, but find a lot of challenges with mainstreaming sustainability, and, and they include challenges around procurement and supply chain, finding suppliers who are engaged with sustainable practices and understanding what's happening through very sometimes very complex uh, transactions and supply chains. I think another area is around just inertia within a company. People have ways of doing things and relationships and you know and it, to move that takes a lot of effort. Um, what, and, and we see companies doing it, but it's, it can be challenging. I think another area is around the lack of focus on monitoring and understanding the financial case for making these changes. So in some cases, companies and boards think, uh, well, if we make these sustainability investments, it's just all on the cost side, when actually we see that there's a fair amount on the benefit side, um, more than compensating for that. And then finally, I would say the if you're a public company, the pressure to focus on the short term and the analysts at quarterly calls not caring at all about sustainability and you know activist investors wanting to buy you up and get rid of anything to do with you know social impact or sustainability all of these are, are I think really pressing challenges well at a university um, this is the place to think long term mm -hmm. and uh, so what do you find draws the students uh, to sustainability courses I think students are interested at the undergraduate level in sustainability because they they see these issues are important for them personally. They're concerned about them. They want to have a job and a career with purpose. So they're looking for ways they can, you know, make money and do well, but also have a social impact. I think at the graduate level, where they've been out in the workplace for you know five to eight years, I think they've seen that businesses are actually directly working mm -hmm. on sustainability issues and are intrigued by uh, an opportunity to to learn more about that and contribute to either to their companies or find other companies that are doing interesting work in that space. And uh, you've had some collaboration with, with businesses that come in and lecture to the students or have internships and what are some of the programs that you've been working on that are you know, new and, and exciting? So we've been working with businesses in a variety of different ways. We've been working with them to provide interesting internships for students. So uh, we worked with, with uh, Pfizer around uh, human, looking at sustainability and human resources. We worked with GAR, which is a palm oil producer, uh, where we sent students to Indonesia to look at smallholder finance and sustainability. We do business cases. We did one on Citibank and energy um, efficiency securitization. And we are doing developing a methodology around the, monetizing the business case for sustainability. And so we worked with McDonald's and looked at their commitment to deforestation-free supply chains and um, looked at Beef in Brazil and all the different players, another retailer, two slaughterhouses and ranchers, um, to understand the, the financial impact of their sustainability practices.
And we also talked about quantifying the information, and that's one area of work that you're uh, you're doing with the students here. And what are the challenges here, and what are some of the outcomes that you've been seeing? Well, I think one of the challenges is that corporations that are embedding sustainability core to their business strategy are, for the most part, not tracking the financial impacts of their investments. So they are tracking operational efficiencies, such as energy savings or water savings but they're not actually monetizing a better employee engagement or retention, which is a good source of funding, or um, innovation. So if you as a company have made a commitment to GHG targets, reduction targets, and as a result of that you've innovated new processes, they're generally not monetizing that, you know, quantifying and monetizing that and tying it back to the sustainability commitment. So that's the type of research that we're doing here and also um, teaching the students. What are some of the opportunities in the job market for students coming out of this program? I think students interested in a sustainability-oriented career path have a lot of opportunities. Uh, one, they could go uh, work for a sustainability department at a big or large corporation. They could go into ESG investing, uh, at a finance company. They could go into sustainability and management consulting. Um, they could go to manufacturing supply chains, so a whole series of different paths. They could go work for an NGO, they could work for a social um, entrepreneur or be a social entrepreneur. But actually because of that complexity of paths, it's a bit challenging for students. It's not an easy, easy way to go. And so they've got to sort of be entrepreneurs themselves and find the path that works best for them. Do you think that this field is going to grow despite you know all the challenges that sustainability at large is facing right now? I think that the field of sustainability and business will have no choice but to grow because sustainability uh, businesses are confronting the serious challenges that the social problems we have around inequity, around poverty, around war, are creating for them the radical transparency that information has and so everybody can see into what they're doing. Uh, I think the environmental side of things, climate change and water scarcity, huge disruptor of business, but whether it's transportation or shutting down factories because there's not enough water. So I think companies will absolutely have to embed sustainability in what they're doing and they will need people who understand that. So I see it as a real opportunity in the next five, ten years to not only contribute to making the world a better place, but to help business be a better business. Thank you so much for your insight. You're welcome. All right, and that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350, and you'll find more information about the organization, stories, events, film documentaries, and everything else we've mentioned in this episode. Thank you to our podcast director, Stephanie Joyce. Contact us by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear your comments. And we'll be back here next week for another edition of GreenBiz 350. From all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. Without federal oversight, who will be the standard bearer for the environment? Who will inspire, influence, and innovate to secure a sustainable future? Who will create a legacy of leadership? You will. Lead from the front. The Environmental Defense Fund has your back.